Christ, worship songs exalting His work together, and to listen to His Word proclaimed. I'd invite you to turn to 2 Peter chapter 1 this morning as we begin a second book in our First and Second Peter series to accompany our Communion Sundays, which are the first Sunday of the month, as you know if you've been here any length of time. 2 Peter 1, verses 1 through 15, will be our primary text today. The aim of this morning's message is to communicate the value of Peter's final instructions. The final instructions of Peter to the church, as far as he uh, deemed probable, as the Lord had shown him his death would soon approach, come to us from the pages of God's holy word. Do we value them as such? I pray today that we would value them more when we see them in the context for which they are given and the context for which they are needed. The title of this morning's sermon is Peter's Commission. I borrowed that title from Jesus' own last words to the church. In Matthew 28, when he said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, we recognize that this charge was important because it was the last instructions that Jesus gave in an audible incarnate voice to the church recorded in Scripture. It gave us our marching orders. It left us with a priority list of things to do, things to stand on. And in a similar way, Peter now, the apostle of Jesus Christ, is giving his own commission of sorts. Things to do, things to stand on. And so this is the context of our message today. Once again, out of reverence for God's word, would you stand this morning for the reading of the scriptures? Let us consider the holy word of God in 2 Peter 1, 1 through 15. Listen as the word of God is proclaimed in your hearing this day. Verse 1. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called you to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfaithful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure, For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 12. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. 
This is the word of God. You may be seated. The occasion and circumstances of Peter's ministry provide him now opportunity to leave his flock with words to remember in his absence. Just as his master, as we mentioned before, Jesus Christ, gave him, Peter, the apostles, and all the church who would follow the commission to go and make disciples in Matthew 28. Here, Peter gives his hearers marching orders, which will likewise provide direction to the church in his absence. As we think about the turning of the page of history, the age of the apostles and what would follow, it would seem concerning if you didn't have assurances that the church would survive this transition. The death of the apostles might have been the end of the Christian church, one might think. It's probable that with the most prominent, bold voices, the eyewitnesses, those who were actually there and got to see with their own senses the resurrected Savior and hear with their own ears His marching orders originally, as they faded into obscurity, as they gave up the ghost, would the faith give up the ghost as well? That would be an open question. The death of the apostles might have been the end of the Christian church if God had not ordained spirit-fueled means of survival in the post-apostolic era. Did they work? Look at your neighbor. That's yes enough. That's an answer to the question. Because you, as the church of Jesus Christ, are gathered in this place, it's proof, it's evidence that the spirit-fueled means to spare his church in the absence of the apostles, to make her strong, grounded, continuing to gather the evidence of the faith, continuing to the next generation and the next generation, God, his word, and the spirit are certainly sufficient. And we indeed, in the gathering of this place, in this assembly, are proof of as much. Praise his holy name. <clears throat> the rest of the New Testament joins 1 Peter and 2 Peter as more means spirit-filled means of survival for the church. In the absence of the apostles, the Word of God would provide the marching orders, the directive, the principle of unity, and His Spirit using these things and their obedience to what the Word contained would preserve Jesus Christ's church and grow Jesus Christ's church until He returns. This Spirit that would fortify the church of Jesus to stand and expand as many generations as He would tarry all the while growing his kingdom and subduing his enemies, Peter says, indwells us. Indwells us. And Jesus Christ promises much in his absence that he would send the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, to indeed be with us and more than this, be inside of us as it were. In chapter 3, verse 1, we have a little context here as far as Peter's writings are concerned. The, the verse reads as follows, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. This isn't the first letter of this type that Peter's written. 3.1 demonstrates as much. He indicates that this is the second of such a charge he has given to encourage the church along these lines. So we can just logically deduce that if Peter is referencing his letter we have already studied, 1 Peter, then his audience would be the same. This would be the churches of Asia Minor. You know, those areas and the regions of the yet pagan world where an outpost of gospel proclamation is surviving in spite of the odds, Cappadocia, Galatia, Bithynia, and so forth. However, it may well be that Peter wrote more frequently to various churches. And if that's the case, then this letter follows another one he has written before. 
I'm like, I think it's quite likely that Peter had much correspondence with the churches. After all, we see history recording in his later years, he is likely ministering from prison. Scholars surmise that 2 Peter was probably written behind bars in some jail in Rome. Likely from prison, toward the end of his life and ministry, the Apostle Peter makes good use of the few remaining days and months and the network of missionaries who can carry his letters to document the solid bedrock of the faith and its applications, which would prove sufficient to preserve and equip the church for thousands of years. Do you ever struggle with your faith today? Do you ever look at the state of the church in our American context and think, I wonder if she'll survive? Do you ever look at the suffocating effects of culture, proclaiming from the loudspeakers of the pagan and apostate and depraved, you know, message boards of our culture, and you think, wow, this is real claustrophobic spiritually. I wonder if we can survive. Well, imagine being an apostle of a church that you could probably count if you just sat there for a half an hour of all the members that currently made up her meager, you know, gathering, a meager assembly, even across the whole known world at the time, and you're in jail, and you're writing, and you're not sure if the letter's going to get there, and if it does, you know, would they read it, would they value it, or had they already fallen away when the church in Bithynia gets these words from the apostle and so forth? You see, if Jesus Christ is able to preserve his church against such great odds as the first century Christians had to endure, can he not preserve his church by these same powerful means for us today? Amen. And he will, and he will as he uses even this message and our gathering and our commitment to obey the means that God has supplied so that we can stand strong in a day when it seems like the odds are against us. This is the context, and so this is a relevant word for us. Given his calling, that is Peter's, to apply and interpret the gospel, and given our situation, surrounded by challenges to our faith, a sober church should treasure every word. These are some of Peter's last words. Imagine him on his deathbed with one more thing to say. This is the Apostle Peter, an eyewitness of Jesus Christ, one who has firsthand knowledge, relationship in the flesh with Jesus our Lord. If you were there at his deathbed and he was giving you one last gasp and one last instruction, one last meaningful thing to leave you with, wouldn't you lean forward to hear and to cling to every word? We have the opportunity to do that today. So let us lean forward by paying attention to these words this day. Because truly, they're not just words from an apostle that we appreciate, but they're inspired by the Holy Spirit himself. So that's a little introduction to the book of 2 Peter. And hopefully we'll set the tone for our appreciation of the rest of the book. And it's also an introduction to our message today. And now let me give you a heading followed by three main points today. Peter's last words communicate and emphasize the following. Number one, an affirmation. Peter affirms the church that they share a faith of equal standing. Is that not reassuring to us that we have a faith of equal standing with the apostles? Number two, Peter's last words communicate and emphasize an exhortation. He gives us instructions to supplement our faith, verses 5 through 11. And number three this morning, by way of main point, Peter's last words communicate his intentions. He has, uh, by way of reminder, intentions to strengthen the church, verses 12 through 15. So in this basic outline, let us consider Peter's words more carefully this morning. First of all, his words communicate and emphasize an affirmation, an encouraging word. He says that we share, if you're a believer in this room, and of course his first audience, whether it be the churches of Asia Minor, 
or wherever he wrote, that believers, all believers, true believers, share a faith of equal standing. Notice in verse 1. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. For a parallel text, for a cross-reference, would you turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 11? 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Of course, as a fellow apostle, Paul wrote 2 Corinthians. And I want to give you a biblical context for servant. So Peter identifies himself in the opening words of 2 Peter as two things, an apostle and a servant. So when he says that you share, if you're a believer, a faith of equal standing with him, you share a faith of equal standing with one who is a servant and one who is an apostle. Apostle is probably a more familiar concept to us, um, but I want to reinforce this notion of servant from a parallel text in 2 Corinthians 11, 23 through 28. Paul identifies himself as a servant. He says the following, Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments. So let me pause and just draw your attention to the context. What is Paul doing here? Well, he's giving his credentials as a servant. And it's a little, he's, uh, when he says that he's telling like a mad, this is not something he wants to brag or boast about in and of himself. Nevertheless, it has become necessary for him to demonstrate to a church that needs to bow, to listen to Christ's authority, even through the apostle, that he is qualified to lead the church. And so what is he going to appeal to? His servanthood status. And this servanthood status is accompanied by hardship and trial, which he has endured. In other words, you know that Paul is a servant of Jesus Christ because he has experienced far more imprisonments with countless beatings, verse 23, and often near death. Five times I received at the hand of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers and toil and hardship. Though through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, 28. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. How is that encouraging, you might ask? Well, it's encouraging when we realize that to be a servant of Jesus Christ, according to Paul and Peter, is to have a faith that is capable of surviving that whole list. And Peter assures you, believer, that you have a faith of equal standing with him. If the servants of Jesus Christ, if their faith granted them grace to endure imprisonment and reviling, ostracized, being ostracized, falsely condemned, even stoned, whipped, beaten, shipwrecked, abandoned, mocked, and marginalized by their culture, the encouragement from 2 Peter 2 is even though you are facing a certain amount of hardship and trial, Nevertheless, be encouraged. The affirmation is this. Just as Simeon, Peter, and Paul were servants and apostles, they, have obtained, they are writing to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with theirs. What an affirmation. The first affirmation in 2 Peter 1 is the quality of your faith. Your faith, believer, if you truly have repented and believed in Jesus Christ, is such 
that the seed that he has planted in you will grant you grace to endure the worst that the devil can throw at you. From the outside of culture, from the inside of temptation, from the affliction to your body, it doesn't matter. If this faith that he has given you is of like faith with the apostles and servants of old, you have this assurance. It is of such a quality that it will grant you grace to endure. And briefly, not only is the quality of your faith such to endure what Paul had to go through if the Lord required it of you, but it is also a faith that is of quality with the apostles of old. In Matthew 16, 18 through 19, Jesus commissions Peter and tells him, among those he represents, that I will give you the keys of the kingdom, uh, the authority and ability to bind or loose. In other words, there is an administration role that is given to the church in this apostolic charge. And so if God has entrusted his church to those who will faithfully confess and proclaim the gospel even today, we can be assured that just as the apostles their voice and their authority was preserved against all odds in the first century, so God will preserve the testimony of His church through His delegated agents even in our day. Turn in your own time later to Acts 5.29 and read once more Peter's bold proclamation and those who are with him to the powers that be. You decide what we should do, but as for us, we will obey God rather than men. And he's declaring boldly with those who have the power to kill him, that they will continue to worship and serve Jesus Christ. Why? Because Peter did not suffer from an evangelical inferiority complex, which I think plagues the church today in America. Yes, we suffer from an inferiority complex because we fail to realize and apply the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. And that when he ascended, he was given as a gift and as a reward for his sufferings, according to Daniel 7, the deed title claim to every nation, principality, power, and authority on this earth. And the Ancient of day Days says, here, your inheritance for your sufferings is the claim to all the nations of the earth. There's not a single king, president, administration, or policy that could stand in the presence of Jesus Christ and have any hope of dethroning him and his authority and his power and his sovereignty. And it's time for the church of Jesus Christ to reclaim the confidence of the first century and preach like it and talk like it and live like it. And when we do so, we will demonstrate a faith of equal standing with those who God gave a mouth and wisdom that even their you know, political uh, leaders could not refuse to resist. And this happened before kings and Caesars and magistrates and rulers and councils all through the New Testament. And it's time to realize the affirming words of 2 Peter, which tell us that we have a faith of equal standing with them. So repent, church, of your inferiority complex if you suffer from it. And instead realize that if you're a true believer, you have faith with, of equal standing with those who suffered, the way we read in 2 Corinthians 11, and also triumphed and proclaimed with authority what we read in Acts chapter 5 and other passages, the quality of our faith. Peter also reminds us of the object of our faith when he says in the same verse, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the object of our faith, that is, what do we have faith in? We have faith in a God and Savior, one of the most powerful evidences and proclamations in the scripture of the divinity, the godness, if you will, of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. We know that the Trinity is a biblical concept from passages exactly like this, where he is both our savior, and to be so, he had to take on flesh and be an actual human, take on the form, as Philippians 2 tells us, and be born 
and our experiences and so forth, fully man. And we also know from this passage and others that he is Yahweh in flesh, fully God. And so the object of our faith, that is that which we have faith in, is not just a Savior meek and mild begging people to follow him and inviting them to open the doors of their hearts, but a sovereign God who spoke this universe into existence by the word of his power and holds it together by his very sovereign hand even today. The God who understands and sees the flight of every sparrow and counts every one when they fall and knows the number of the hairs on your own head. This is the object of our faith. This is Jesus Christ, our God and Savior. So Peter affirms us in this, in this faith of equal standing. It's of superior quality. Why? Because the object of our faith is a perfect Savior and a sovereign God. And thirdly, the source of our faith. How do we get this faith? Where did it come from? Well, he says as much in the same verse again. He says, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by what? So this is the source, the means whereby we've obtained this faith. The righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. How did you come to believe? You came to believe primarily, as we've studied in Genesis recently, on the, on the obedience of another. Jesus Christ's righteousness actually secured your faith. The work of Jesus Christ, the work of Christ alone, actually secured your own faith. Has Jesus Christ ever set his mind to do something and failed? Of course not. Would every prayer of Jesus be answered? Absolutely. He prays before the Father with perfect knowledge and understanding. Will the purposes of a sovereign God be accomplished without exception? You bet. You can stake your eternal life on it. And in the same way, Jesus Christ, God and Savior, by His righteousness, secured your faith. Do you see how affirming this is? Can you hear it? No, saint, that this faith is of a quality equal with those who suffered greatly and proclaimed all the while with authority that Jesus Christ is God and Savior. No, saints, that the object of your faith, Jesus Christ, is both man and God, as such, Savior and Sovereign, and no, that the source of your faith is not ultimately your own works of righteousness, something that you could boast of, but indeed the works and righteousness of Jesus Christ. More references to the source of faith. Verse 2, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So it is the righteousness of Christ and it is the knowledge of God that is the source, in fact, of our faith and builds it. Verse 3, more words, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So what is the source of life and godliness? The divine power of Jesus Christ. It says further, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, and then another linking ver word in verse 4, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. And so by what has he granted us these promises? His glory and his excellence. So why do you believe? What changed your heart? Where did this faith come from? What is the source of your belief? Ultimately, most foundationally, the essence of your faith is the righteousness, the power, the glory, and the excellence of Jesus Christ. And finally, the nature. What is the nature of this faith? By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world, because of sinful desire. You, saint, the affirmation 
of the apostle comes to you and says that you have become, you have become partakers of the divine nature. What does this speak to? With the greater testimony of Scripture, we know that this speaks to union with Jesus Christ and the indwelling of the Spirit. When the Spirit of the living God dwells with you, you have become a partaker of the divine nature. When the Lord has stooped low to come beside you, advocating on your behalf, going before you, convicting you of sin, and giving you grace to walk ever more so in the freedom for which Christ purchased for you, and directing your steps and giving you a growing understanding of the Word of God. If these are fruits of your repentance that have taken place and are taking place in your own sanctification, then you should be assured and encouraged that you have become a partaker in the divine nature, so to speak. That is to say, you have a personal relationship and abiding presence that follows you, even the Holy Spirit of God indwelling you. This faith of equal standing is powerful. Don't underestimate the absolute time bomb of glorious power that God has invested in your own soul. And this is nothing of you. Have we not established this already? This is nothing to boast about. No, this is a mystery whereby God has seen fit to glorify himself by choosing an unlikely vessel to proclaim his name. And how does he proclaim his glory? Sometimes by enduring suffering, sometimes by simply persevering, Sometimes by taking that opportunity to share the reason for the hope within. Sometimes by waking up one more morning to be faithful to your call, uh, parents, to do some homeschooling. Or to open up the scriptures, fathers, as we've been encouraging you, and husbands, each night or whenever you choose in family worship. These are the things that God has ordained for you to do. And these are the evidences of his work inside. And these are ways that his power shines through. And don't underestimate it. Peter's last words communicate and emphasize in affirmation that we have a faith of equal standing with those who went before in its quality, its object, its source, and its nature. Second major point this morning. Peter's last words communicate and emphasize to us an exhortation. So this is some commandments, some directives, things to do. And he says, in summary, in verses 5 through 11, supplement your faith. And we know what supplements are, don't we? They're things we take to help us. And so there are things that you can take, so to speak. Think about your faith needing vitamins, necessary fortifications, supplements. He says in verse 5, for this very reason, so on the basis of everything we just considered, make every effort to supplement your faith. So this is walking in a manner worthy of your call, the way Paul described it in Ephesians. <clears throat> this is the obedience as fruit of repentance that attends every believer. This is the active element of following Jesus Christ that is part and parcel of your sanctification. He says, for this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with the following. Seven qualities. Virtue. And with virtue, knowledge. With knowledge, self-control. Self-control with steadfastness. Steadfastness with godliness godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Why does the church need these things? Well, first, it is clear in the context that the situation, the occasion for Peter's writing is a bunch of dangerous circumstances, cultural context, and trials that the church will soon face. Now, the majority, or a major element 
of the dangers for which the church needs to be fortified will prove to be false teaching. Notice 2.1, the next chapter. But false teachers also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. Notice some key phrases there. Heresies, destructive heresies. Uh, the, these come from vessels who deny messengers, who deny the master who bought them. And as a result, the way of truth is blasphemed by them and so forth. It goes on to describe that their greed and their explo exploitation and their false words accompany what they speak. In order for us today, this is not a situation unique to the first century believer, but indeed is an ever-present reality in our time, in order for us to be fortified against destructive heresies, Peter says we need faith supplements. We need to be strengthened by virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love in order to stand. To stand against what? Well, to stand against these cleverly devised myths he refers to in verse 16 of chapter 1. Do we have cleverly devised myths in our day and age? You better believe it. At the time when Peter was writing, scholars have surmised that early forms of Gnosticism, which is Greek for knowledge, were making inroads into the church. And this was a depraved hybrid of some uh, Christian-y sounding things, Eastern religion and the philosophies of the day mixed together in a toxic soup of blasphemy and denying the Lord in what it proclaimed. And this was all on the basis of this kind of secret knowledge. And it was interesting and tantalizing because this cleverly devised myth gave you an opportunity to be expert in things that other people didn't really know about and be really on the cutting edge. And it gave you, you know, something to wrap your identity around. And it captivated the attention of those who were easily led astray from the bedrock of the gospel proclamation, which is the clear, revealed truth, and said there's something deeper, more interesting, more profound, more tantalizing. And, then, and, we, and we want to give you the opportunity to understand. Now, as against this, Peter writes to fortify the church. And he refers to knowledge five times in its correct context in our passage today. And I believe the reason that he emphasizes this is to put to bed, to destroy, to bring down, as Paul said, the opinions of man and to declare dominion over them and to cast down the vain imaginations of the naysayers and the blasphemers, these cleverly devised myths, and to do it by proclaiming the truth. In verse 2 he says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. He says, through the knowledge of Him, that is the knowledge of Jesus, who called you, uh, called us to His own glory and excellence. This is the foundation of our life, our godliness, His glory and excellence, the knowledge of those things. He says to add in this list of qualities to our virtue, knowledge. And this would be the understanding of the, of the gospel, unadulterated, undiluted, and, un, uh, and with no parasites of man's thinking attached. And in verse 8, he says this will keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of Jesus Christ our Lord. And further, by, more by implication, verse 16, these things will fortify us against cleverly devised myths. One thing the Gnostics taught is a spirit-body dualism. That is, the things of the mind, the experience of the consciousness, was really not directly tied to the body or physical experience such as we know it. 
This same lie is coming to you today in the form of the LGBTQ movement. The trans movement, the LGBTQ movement today teaches that there is a malleable that we can customize our sexual identity. The lie is that our consciousness, our sense of self and who we really are is not bound in any ethical sense to the created order evidenced in our bodies. In other words, who we are has nothing to do with the way we're made. And in fact, a further heresy of our day is evolution, which says that we are not divinely designed by a superior being, but instead we are a cosmic accident who survives because we happen to be more fit than the last generation in our slow, painful uh, process of evolution. And now these things can be very tantalizing to the undiscerning, but I'm here to say that they are cleverly devised myths. Who you are, the scriptures say it this way, you are not your own, you are bought with a price. You are not your own on two accounts. Number one, God created you, therefore you have no authority to self-identify as anything other than what God designed you to be. And number two, you are recreated by Jesus Christ. And when you, did, when you declared your allegiance to our, to our Lord Jesus Christ, you turned over your all, all of your rights of self-identification as if you had any to Jesus and became a slave to him. So shame on any teacher. And cursed be the, uh, the message that they stand on if they should ever compromise those two. Jesus Christ and Christ alone has the power to identify who we are. And who does he say we are? He says, male and female, I created them, no exceptions. He says that you are blood-bought, a chosen people, an ethnicity set apart for the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Therefore, these cultural identities and all the emphasis that is placed upon them is not definitive to your identity in Christ, but instead the fact that you are blood-bought by a Savior, Lord, and King, Jesus Christ. And so the word of God, the gospel, the true knowledge of the scriptures cuts against the grain of all the cleverly devised myths of our culture, which as we've said in numerous messages lately, seek to redefine our identity according to what we, a fallen culture, our sinfulness, or the virtues that are celebrated by the godless of our day prefer. Never let it be said among the church of Jesus Christ. In the face of such pressure, let us double down on the knowledge of Jesus Christ, our Lord. The knowledge of him who called us according to his glory and excellence. The knowledge of him who by his grace and peace multiplied to us in his cross uh, and procured ourselves, and by that means secured our salvation. The knowledge of him who in all the counsel of his holy word identified from the moment of creation to the moment of recreation and beyond who we are and what we ought to be. The knowledge of Jesus and anything less scriptures say, will render us unfruitful and ineffective and worse. Therefore, the exhortation is to supplement your faith. Why? Because you need it. You need it to stand in a cultural context of cleverly devised myths that holds out hope in a new and improved, so to speak, understanding of self, self-identity, and understanding of salvation means to secure the future. This, these uh, dangers joined defilements and scoffing and denying the creation and the judgment of the Lord, the final judgment, and uh, as well as twisting the word of God as examples throughout the course of the book, which we'll study in due course. Nevertheless, this exhortation was necessary because of all this dangerous claims, all these dangerous claims to the contrary that the church faced.
they needed reinforcements. What were the reinforcements? We will go over these, I trust, in a future message in more detail, but they are this list of seven qualities. Bring in the reinforcements. Call the reinforcements to the faith of the church that she might stand even when her faith is challenged. What does she need? Virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. For the purpose of this message, perhaps we can identify these in three categories to help us remember them or help us to remind, or to remind ourselves where we as a church need to be reinforced. The first category, category is purity of heart, virtue, self-control, and godliness. We need to be reinforced as a church in the purity of our heart and our souls by taking good use of these supplements of virtue, of self-control, taking dominion over ourselves, of godliness, loving, and applying who Jesus is and his work and the things that God loves and the, these types of things. Uh, they, these are the qualities that deal with purity of heart that rein, will reinforce us in a day when it is so needed. Second category of reinforcements, conviction of the truth, knowledge and steadfastness. The knowledge of the scriptures. You cannot afford to be ignorant as to sound doctrine. If you do not know your faith, the basics, you don't need to know everything. You don't need to be a theological nerd, so to speak. But you need to know the basics so that any argument to the contrary sounds as it ought foolishness and absurdity to you. You need to have a basic, confident understanding of the knowledge of the gospel so that when the cleverly devised myths are spoken to you, sugar-coated with all the uh, you know, religious-type language, you're able to see underneath that thin veneer of corn syrup to the poison and the toxin underneath. And this is what the Bible calls discernment. It's by reason of use and by the reason of the standard, if you will, that we have our senses exercised to discern good and evil, and you need it to be steadfast. Convictions of the truth. Steadfastness, of course, is merely enduring and, being, and sticking by your guns and your convictions, even when it's difficult to do so. As human beings, naturally in our fallen state, it's easier to be excited about something when we first hear about it. It's fun to embrace a new identity. There's the novelty of the new that compels the attention of us. But this is really something that could be misinterpreted as fruit, but really is just a feature of the flesh. You know, I had, I've shared his story before, it's a tragic one, but I had a friend in college and after school, he went out to be an actor in Hollywood and was trying to climb the ladder of success and fame, you know, in the media culture of, you know, as it's sometimes called, Sodom by the Sea in Los Angeles. And he found himself in kind of B-quality movies or less in promiscuous situations surrounded by the immorality that defined that genre. And I called him on the phone one time and I said, you know, you used to get curfew passes so you could stay up late to write worship songs on the piano in the lobby of the library when we were in Bible school. What happened? He said this. He said, when I was in school, I went out for basketball. So I tried to be the best basketball player I could be. When I was in youth group, I went out for Christianity. So I wanted to be the best you know, Christian I could be. When I was in college, I went out for Bible school. So I tried to be the best you know, worship leader I could be. And now... I'm going out for acting. I'm going to try to be the best actor I could be. You see, from our limited perspective, we might have thought of that individual as super spiritual, but really, 
What looked like fruit to us was just a feature of the flesh. He had found a new and improved identity for a little bit. They gave him an affiliation with a new friend group, and he felt pretty good when other people looked at him as super holy because he got his curfew passes to write worship songs in the lobby of the library. But what happened? Steadfastness did not follow his confession. And over time, when the sun was bright in the sky, the roots proved to be shallow, and those stones in the soil resurfaced. And this is why the conviction of the truth needs to be deep and secure. We need to be able to stand. We need the reinforcements and conviction of the truth, the knowledge, the steadfastness, the purity of the heart, and these things that will reinforce us so that on the day of trial, we will find that our roots are tapped into streams of living water. Finally, gracious relationships. Not only virtue, self-control, godliness, not only knowledge and steadfastness, but also brotherly affection and love. Gracious relationships within the body of Christ are necessary for us to stand. These are the reinforcements that supplement our faith. Thus the exhortation, pursue these, the apostle says, that we might stand. What's the alternative? Verse 8, if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You may not value things of the purity of the heart very much, and you just want to stand on conviction of the truth. Will that be sufficient? No. You may think, well, I'm a really relational person, but, you know, the truth, I'm not really interested uh, but no, all three of these categories, purity of heart, conviction of truth, and relationship are necessary. And if they are lacking, what will happen? We'll be rendered ineffective and unfruitful and worse in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Verse 9 goes on. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Blind and forgetful, nearsighted. Losing the capacity to understand self and to discern rightly, to have an objective take on things. This is a very frightful place to be. The Bible also calls it self-deception. In order to fortify yourself against these things, you must have purity of heart, conviction of truth, and gracious relationships nurtured within the body of Christ, hence the exhortation. On the flip side, that's the alternative if we don't have them. What is the promise if we do? Verse 10, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. What a reassuring promise. Backslide prevention plan. Those seven virtues, those seven qualities in those three categories, purity of heart, conviction of truth, gracious relationships. That's a backslide prevention plan that you can implement by heeding Peter's exhortation. This means of grace, if you will, for the church to stand. For in this way, verse 11, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, the fifth point that we often confess in the doctrines of grace is the perseverance of the saints. And what Peter is exhorting you here is the means whereby the saints persevere. When the saints value apply and grow in and take seriously the admonition that is written here, the virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, and so on. These are the means whereby she perseveres. And therefore, by this way, a rich entrance is provided for us into the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And again, remember, the essence of all this is the righteousness of Jesus. We're in the application point at this uh, stage as far as the theological categories go. But when we finally do, by God's grace alone, as evidence through a growing appreciation and application of these things, stand before the throne of grace, 
if we should ever hear, well done, my good and faithful servant, we will know it's because the word of God was heeded and by God's grace, that indwelling spirit changed our heart to love, appreciate, and apply these very words that Peter has given us. And I pray that that would be our experience, that we would hear those words one day. Are there any shortcuts? No, there is not. So join me, would you, in applying these things. Lastly, more briefly this morning, Peter's last words communicate, they emphasize an affirmation. Peter speaks of a faith of equal standing. Exhortation. This is the instruction to supplement our faith, as we said. And finally, he reveals his intentions by way of reminder. He's going to continue to emphasize these things. Verses 12 through 15. Therefore, again, Peter in the first person speaking, writing. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right as long as I'm in this body to stir you up by way of reminder since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. The purpose for Peter's ministry is to go over the same tried and true truth and foundation of faith over and over again as a means to exhort, to encourage, and to equip the church. Will the church listen the third time he says it? As closely as they did the first, she better if she is to stand. I went, I opened up a file. It struck me earlier this week that I had preached on this passage before. So I went to my file cabinet. I pulled out a file of occasional sermons. And sure enough, I found three other outlines from the, these very same verses. Some of what I'm giving you today is work from prior study. And then I thought to myself, and this is a confession, sometimes in my flesh I'm less motivated to preach on a text that I've already covered before. That's not the heart of Peter, is it? It struck me, and I repented, that this is a verse, this is a passage that needs repeating over and over again. So you need to hold your pastor accountable to emphasize the very foundational things that are there for the repeated instruction and reminder of the church, just echoing what Peter has given us over and over again. You do not need my insights and my experiences and new takes on things and hot takes and this and that. I don't have to start a podcast where I show off my intellectual superiority for puffing up one's flesh. No, the role, primary role of a faithful pastor, minister of the Word of God is to proclaim the truths that are foundational and will fortify you in a day when your faith is challenged, and to do it with regularity, with conviction, with steadfastness, to not grow weary in well-doing. So pray that you would not grow weary in well-doing, and pray that the gospel would be proclaimed from this pulpit without weariness. That's what I need prayer for. That's what we all need prayer for, is it not? That we would share the ministry purpose of Peter himself when he said, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Think of it in the context of parents and children. How many times do we get frustrated because we have to tell our children the same thing once again? Uh, fight that frustration. Look at the opportunities that your child gives you in demonstrating his sin as a gospel opportunity to share with him the only means whereby he can repent and turn from his rebellion, his obstinance, or his dishonoring of parents, or whatever sin that he may be demonstrating or she at that particular time. You have the opportunity in parenting, more than most, to always remind your children of these qualities. 
And if we do so with the heart of Peter, we will embrace the very means whereby our families, by God's grace, can endure and, by that means of proclaiming the gospel to the next generation, secure entrance into the eternal kingdom for us and our children. And by His grace, we pray, our children's children, the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter, this is his intention. Now, his intention and the perspective is only magnified in his mind and the minds of the hearers when they realize, when we realize that he is close to death, 13 and 15. I think it right as long as I'm in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. What would you say? What would you focus on if you knew you only had four weeks to live? Let's say his martyrdom was on the schedule and the guard tipped him off. You know, in four weeks, your case is to be heard. And I hear a rumor that your head's going to be lopped off, you'll be crucified upside down, whatever it was, in just four weeks. How would you spend that time? Well, I know Peter's answer. He gives it to us here. As many days, weeks, months, as God gives him ability, he will remind the church of these qualities by any means he has at his disposal, knowing that he will be putting off his body soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to him. There's a gravestone in the Emily Cemetery, and on that gravestone is written 3 John 1.4. And it's that passage, no greater joy, I have no greater joy than to hear my children walk in the truth. I believe that may not be a perfect um, recitation. And it struck me how profound that gravestone is when I walk past it. I have no greater joy than my children walk in the truth. When it comes time to choose your own gravestone, I wonder what the message will be on that memorial to your own death. I think Peter gives us what his epitaph would read. I'll remind you to stand in the truth that you have in Jesus Christ, something along those lines. A phrase to summarize his intention of ministry and the importance of his last words in 2 Peter 1, 1 through 15, and through the course of the book as we read it. The urgency of death, the shortness of our life, the fact that life is a vapor and we don't even know tomorrow, and as Psalm 90 encouraged us in the words of Moses this morning, our worship text, teach us to number our days, can shape our perspective to realize what is truly most important. And Peter models this in his own words. My grandpa passed away a few years ago. Many of you knew him. And if you knew a little bit of our story, by God's providence and grace, he was the first of multi-generation Christian family. And a lot of us just acknowledged that God's mercy was extended to us through the means of godly family. And so when my grandpa had few words to spare on his deathbed, you better believe we all leaned close and listened. There's a greater voice here that is leaning in, or that we should lean in and listen to, and it's the voice of the apostle, one of the founders of our faith, commissioned by Jesus Christ, and given keys and given the ability by the Spirit's inspiration to write the very scriptures. So I beg you, when you read Peter, when you read all of the scriptures, to lean close, as if listening to a beloved relative's last words. The urgency of death provides a context to help us realize the aim of this message, communicate the value of Peter's final charge. Today, if you have listened to God's word, you are actually fulfilling Peter's legacy, and more importantly, the legacy of Jesus Christ. Peter says in verse 15, I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. 
And Peter's words and intentions are coming true even now as we're recalling the things that he wrote because they're written in the Holy Scriptures. This morning is Communion Sunday. God is so gracious to us. He's not only given us his word in written form, but he's given us his word in dramatized form, if you will, or in physical form, in a sense, at his table today. What I want to emphasize to you at the communion table this morning is that what Peter says in verse 9, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Did you catch that? If you forget that you were cleansed from your former sins, that's when falling is just around the corner. That's when you're in danger of backsliding. That's when you become ineffective and unfruitful. That is to say, there's a link between remembrance of the cleansings of sin and the reinforcing qualities Peter exhorts us to supplement our faith with. Peter endorses these things that we have read as faith supplements, and thus in communion today, as we remember and proclaim, we are poised to grow in virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, affection, and brotherly love. Remembering the work of Jesus Christ and growth in your faith go hand in hand. So remember this morning and proclaim. Let the body and blood of Jesus demonstrate and portrayed before you at this table remind you of the incredible gracious cost that paid for your sin. And let that move you and motivate you towards purity of heart, conviction of truth, and growing in gracious relationship with those in the body of Christ. In this way, the communion table helps us to apply 1 Peter 1, 1 through 15. If you are not a believer in the sound of my voice, then this table is not open to you. There is only one door that opens to welcome you into communion in the presence of a holy God, and that is through the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ. There's no other door. There are no other cleverly devised myths that can secure your hope for eternity or for the future. No, there is none. Not Gnosticism, not the virtues and values of our day, not the speculative thinking of the latest spiritual trend. None of these things. There is but one door. If you have gone through that door of Jesus Christ, trust and believe that His blood has cleansed you of your sin, the communion table is open to you. If you have not, the door remains closed. And to you I say the following. Repent of your sin. Turn from your wickedness. These virtues are bracketed by by sin in uh, the nature of our experience in sin in the beginning and at the end. Peter says, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire, and he goes on to encourage us. And then he closes his message by saying that we need to remember that we were cleansed from our former sins in so many words in verse 9. So you see the context here is that believers who have turned from their sin and turned to Jesus Christ have reason to be fortified and encouraged in their faith. But if you have not turned from your sin, I urge you this day, I command you by the word of Jesus Christ to repent and to believe. That may not apply to someone sitting here in this room, but it may well apply to you. And if it does, and if this word pricks your heart, and brings conviction of the wickedness, the ungodliness, and the ways that you have embraced the evil one and the wickedness of the false teachers of our day, the destructive heresies of our hour, 
and the sensuality of the moment and the blasphemy and the greed and the exploitation that accompanies our culture, I pray that you would turn from these things, turn to Jesus Christ and believe. And when you do so, the communion table will be open to you. Let us transition in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the message and the power of your Holy Scripture. I pray that you would guide us in this series as we seek to understand and to apply the words so precious written to us in the last days of the Apostle Peter, giving to us this church the commission and means whereby to stand. We recognize that he can do so because the Spirit, the indwelling Spirit, inspired these very words. Teach us to treasure them accordingly and to apply them with consistency. And Lord, at your table, I pray that we would remember the precious blood of Jesus Christ that cleansed us from our former sins. And I pray in this remembrance and proclamation that you would strengthen us to add to our faith those things that are necessary for us to stand in a day where Christ and his sovereignty and his glory and authority is challenged. Never successfully, for you are truly Lord of all. But I pray today by these means we will stand undaunted, faithful and confident, steadfast and movable, and always abounding in the work of the Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.